Lauren Moody, who was our accompanist here at Woodmont for 17 years, is that right? Four years? 14. I was about to say, that's nowhere close. Okay. 14 years. Her husband Bill is here today with her on Mother's Day. Bill and Lauren were, uh, they had children that were my age at First Baptist, and we all grew up playing together uh, at First Baptist Nashville in the 90s. A wonderful time to grow up. Uh, what a wonderful, uh, beautiful flowers here in honor of Pat Steinhaus. I didn't get to know Pat. She died before I became pastor here, but I feel like her spiritual legacy and Kathleen Horrell and other saints, these wonderful moms who've gone on before us, that those legacies are still paying dividends for Woodmont Baptist Church and for the kingdom to this day. So very grateful for those legacies. Wonderful to have Darby playing violin with us today. Thank you, Ad, so much. And now, oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Show us Christ. Thank you, uh, Lynn and Justin and, and everyone for that song in the choir. Beautiful word. It's good to be back in the pulpit today. I, I missed it last week. I'm so grateful, though, to Dr. Whitney for coming and teaching us about spiritual disciplines last week. I'll never forget his illustrations. They were so powerful, as he talked about in the, in the conference about the need for the devotional life. If you're a Christian here today, having that, that spiritual motivational, uh, not motivational, but that, that, that time every morning where you're in meditation in God's word and in scripture, that devotional life is not optional for Christians. It's absolutely mandatory to have that time with the Lord. If we're gonna be following the Lord, we have to be in communion with him. And he used the illustrations of going by a fire on a cold day and you're, you're freezing cold and you've been outside for hours and you come in, you, you go by the fire. He said, it's not enough to just walk by it and then keep going. He said, you have to linger by the fire until your bones are warmed. I felt like that was a good illustration for the spiritual disciplines. He also talked about tea. Anybody a, a fan of tea here? Anybody like to make their own tea? Have your own tea kettle, teapot, and do loose leaf tea? I'm not into all that fancy stuff, but he talked about how you can't just dunk the tea into the cup and then take it out and expect it to taste wonderful. You have to let it steep. You have to let it brew. I thought that was a good way to think about God's word as it takes root in our souls and as it steeps and takes time to, to get all the flavor and all the goodness out of God's word. I'll never forget those illustrations. But I'll admit that I was a little panicked last Sunday morning when he texted me and said, I have no voice. Woke up with no voice. I was like, I, have, I got nothing. I got, I got nothing. I was thinking through my head of what could I pull out to preach that I haven't preached before or something that I could maybe retweak and reuse. I'm just desperate at this point. And so we just started praying that he would be able to preach. And it was really a testament to the power of prayer. His voice got stronger. Did you realize that? As he went on. And then after the sermon, I, I was speaking to him and kind of saying our goodbyes and his voice was gone again. He, he could hardly speak. And we were saying, you know, thank you for coming. And we were talking about, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention and some other stuff. And finally he said something and I couldn't understand him. And I thought he said, I love you. And I was like, oh, uh, I love you too, you know? I just met the guy on Friday, but you know, we're spiritual brothers in Christ. And I was like, oh, I love you too, man. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to not be awkward about it. And, and then he said, no, no. I said, your, your people love you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, okay, <laughs> thanks. 
And I said, it really is amazing to be a part of a family of faith that takes John 13, 34 seriously, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this church loves me and my family and you love each other in just indelible ways that I see every week. So thank you for, for loving me and I love you too. And I hope that you will love each other uh, as Christ has loved us and given his life for us. We're gonna be back in John today, which um, I, I read an article recently about how to preach effectively and, and get people interested. And it said, never preach through a whole book. <laughs> it said, do series four to six weeks max for your series. And I was like, uh-oh, we're, <laughs> we're not doing that right. But I, I hope that you're finding truth and, and spiritual meat as we preach through this incredible gospel of John uh, each week. Uh, we're in John chapter six. We're gonna finish the sixth chapter of John today. And this, this text, verses 60 through 71, are often described in commentaries as a watershed moment in the life of Jesus and in the gospel of John. Now, I've heard that phrase before, watershed moment. I knew that it meant like a, a big turning point or, or something like that, but I, I didn't know where it came from, so I did a little Googling and found that uh, watershed is actually a geographical term. According to vocabulary.com, it's the area that drains into a single river is the watershed for that river. Watershed can also mean a ridge like that formed by a chain of mountains which sends water to two different river systems on either side. It's from this meaning that watershed came to mean a turning point or dividing line in social life. So in this text today, we're gonna to see a, a watershed moment from this point on, after John chapter six, there's gonna be clearly two distinct groups of people. Those who truly follow Jesus Christ and those who do not. Remember from a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 and what a great miracle that was, but the crowds didn't understand who Jesus really was. They were amazed by the miracle and they tried to make him king by force. But he said, you, you don't get it. They were looking on a physical, shallow level. They said, hooray, we'll never be hungry again. We'll never have to plow the hard, dry ground again. We'll have a king who can provide for us forever. And Jesus said, it's not about the physical bread of survival that keeps you physically alive. It's about the spiritual bread of life. You all are stuck in this Old Testament thinking, he said. You're thinking about how Moses received the manna in the wilderness that God gave to keep the Israelites alive. They were just surviving on it for 40 years. But I bring abundant life. And this kind of life that I bring only comes through partaking of the spiritual bread of my own flesh. So... As we read this text, you'll notice that Jesus isn't very good at like these preacher blogs, what they would say about how to attract and maintain an audience. He's, he's not really great at that, apparently. He, he's not so great with telling people what they want to hear. Let's pick it up in verse 60 now. And will you stand if you're able to, as I read our text for today from the word of God, 
John chapter 6, verse 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Now, for most preachers, if, if I was to, to begin a sermon and about 95% of you uh, didn't like what you were hearing, were so offended to the point where you would just stand up and say, yeah, that's not for me, and you would walk out, uh, most preachers would consider that to be a bad sermon, not a good Sunday, a bit of a failure perhaps, but not so for Jesus. Jesus is simply allowing the rain of his word to fall on all the people and let it run where it may will. Jesus says these words of truth over all the crowds and those who are not really his disciples simply fall back into the watershed of this world. And those who receive his word fall into the watershed of eternal life. The watershed of this world is one where the rivers are, are, are muddy and murky and, and dry in many places. The watershed of eternal life is one of thriving and flourishing fruitfulness, like a tree planted beside those streams of living water. We're going to talk about that next week. And for Jesus, we know that these words were really offensive to the Jews in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him because of what he was saying. They said, it's blasphemy. You're saying that, that you're equal to God the Father. That, that deserves death by stoning. We're gonna kill him. But the dividing line isn't about race. It's not about Jews and Greeks. It's not about class, rich and poor. It's not about education. It's not about any kind of gender that only men can, can do this or only women. It's not about any kind of achievement and success in this world. Being a disciple of Jesus is all about one thing, how one responds to the words of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the continental divide of the Americas, I think we learned this in like fifth grade. I don't know if, if Jude's done this yet or not, but uh, the continental divide is, is the great dividing line. I didn't realize this, but it runs all the way from the Bering Strait up in Alaska, 
all the way down to the, the Cape of Magellan at the tip of Chile at the, the end of South America. And the Great Continental Divide determines two watersheds. Every drop of rain that falls on North or South America ends up in either the Atlantic watershed or the Pacific watershed. Everything, all those river systems flow into either east or west. There really is no middle ground. When it comes to Jesus Christ, we're faced with a continental divide. When it comes to how we respond to the claims of Jesus, we end up in one of two watersheds. C.S. Lewis and, and others say that one watershed we, we really only have three options, and, and two options will put you in this watershed. One option will put you in this watershed. When we hear the claims of Christ, we can say, no, he was a liar. He was intentionally deceiving these people by saying, I'm equal to God the Father. You can, that's one option, to say he's a liar. Another option is to say he's crazy. He was out of his mind. He was just uttering delusional nonsense but he, he had no idea what he was talking about. Those two options will put you into one watershed. The only other option that we have is to believe Jesus is who he says he was, that he is Lord of all, that he is the one by whom all creation was spoken into existence, that he is the word made flesh, who came to dwell among us in order to bring us truth and life and light forever. How we determine what Jesus is to us will determine which watershed we move into, not just for the rest of our lives, but for eternity. The crowds that were following Jesus here in chapter 6 are still lingering after the, the feeding of the 5,000. They weren't truly disciples they were only looking for a magic trick or maybe another free lunch. Or they thought they might be part of a political revolution. We found the Messiah who's going to drive out the Romans. But Jesus himself told us about the dividing line, the great continental divide of himself that determines who are true disciples and who are not. Skip ahead to John 8, chapter th uh, 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. These crowds did not abide in his word and respond to it with joy and with freedom. Instead, they complained, oh man, that's a hard saying. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's gross. We're scandalized by that. That's highly offensive in our sophisticated culture of Judea. We're not going to have it. Let's get out of here. The, the Greek word for hard, when they say this is a hard saying, it doesn't mean like, like difficult. It doesn't mean like hard to grasp or hard to understand. It really means something more like harsh or offensive. This is a gross saying. It's not up to our social pedigree. It doesn't fit our cultural norms. People still react to Jesus this way today, don't they? What? I'm supposed to die to myself 
I'm supposed to reorient my entire life around the cross of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. It's not for me. That's a hard saying. I'm going to walk away. No thanks. You know, that reminds me of of Fairweather fans. You know what Fairweather fans are? Fairweather fans always think of uh, every time the Preds make the playoffs, (laughs) right? Whenever the Predators are in the playoffs, it's like, hockey town, let's go. Everybody's a hockey fan in Nashville now. And, you know, I get all excited about it. And I, you know, I signed up for NHL package on streaming so I could watch all the games this year. And, you know, I'm, I'm calling my friends from Michigan, like, what's icing? Explain icing to me. I don't understand what that, how does that work? Because I still don't know anything about hockey. And I've got friends who've had season tickets, you know, for like 15 years to Preds games. And they're like, yeah, you bandwagon fans. As soon as they lose, you're going to forget all about hockey again. You know what the the creed of the Fairweather fan is? Last to join, first to leave. The crowds who were following Jesus were Fairweather fans. They were just having a blast following Jesus when it was just about seeing magic tricks and getting some free food. But when they were confronted with the claims of Christ, they wanted no part. They simply fell back over the divide of Christ's words back into the watershed of this sin-sick world. The idea of partaking in the body and blood of Christ was just far too scandalous for them. But of course, Jesus is not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about actually eating his flesh. We know that. He's talking about partaking in union with himself by abiding in his words of life. Look at verse 63. It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. Remember John 10.10, Jesus came that we may have life and have it to the fullest. The flesh is no help at all. Man, we get that backwards. We, We spin our wheels in our fleshly, physical existence trying to give life to ourselves. It just does no good. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The the book of James, you talked about this, Trey, talks about humbly receiving the implanted word of Jesus Christ and his life-giving, spirit-filled word, which is able to, what? Save your soul. To live in the, the watershed of eternal life, the watershed of flourishing and salvation, one only has to receive Jesus's life-giving words. It's not an intellectual agreement. It's not saying, yes, Jesus, I concur with your argument. That's not what it is. It's about believing in your soul so deeply that Jesus's words are the best words you've ever heard because they transform dead things into alive things. You have to let those words take root in the soil of your soul for them to be able to bear the fruit of eternal life. I think churches across Nashville are probably full of people who don't have Jesus' words of spirit and life in the soil of their souls. You know, I think we still have a lot of cultural Christians, nominal Christians around these parts in the buckle of the Bible belt. I had coffee with Russell Moore last year, you know, Russell Moore is the, the head of kind of the uh, 
the policy-making arm of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, here in Nashville, and he's got offices in D.C. and kind of around the world, but we went to coffee last year, and, and he was telling me, yeah, in the West, you know, churches are in decline. We're seeing cultural Christianity come to an end, and that's a good thing. I said, what? Our churches are, are, are shrinking. 200 churches close their doors in America every week for good. How can that be a good thing? Russell said we shouldn't fear the rise of secularism in Western culture. There's a, there's a silver lining to it, he said. Yes, churches may be smaller. Yes, the Baptist Convention may be smaller going forward, but it'll be healthier. I said, how, how could it be healthier? He said, well, we're not going to be a moral majority in this country anymore, and that's a good thing. Because the ways of Jesus were never meant for some moral majority to force the immoral minority to behave the way we want them to behave. That was never the way that Jesus intended for it to be. Russell said the people of God have always been intended to speak truth into the world as a prophetic minority. I said, wow, that's good. I can get fired up about being part of the prophetic minority. People who don't live like the rest of this world lives. People who are different in order to make a difference for the kingdom by helping this world become what God wants it to be, to flourish and thrive as only he can do. Russell told me that these cultural Christians, these nominal church attenders, that they're going to be weeded out of our churches. That we're going to see a majority of true disciples in our churches, and that's a good thing. You know, when I was working with teenagers, I was a youth minister for 12 years, I would often tell them that being in church doesn't save you. You know, being in church doesn't make you any more of a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car, right? It's not about showing up and sitting in your pew, maybe even giving some money, checking off these things. It's not about that. It's about the word of Christ in your soul. I received a precious gift from the personal library of a great mentor and friend, Bob Bird. He's Vicki Anderson's, where's Vicki? There she is. Vicki's dad and, and Becky's dad. Uh, he was my New Testament professor at Belmont a long time ago. And he's just a godly man, and he gave me a collection of stories by the legendary preacher Fred Craddock. And I'm going to try real hard to not use one every week or two or three because they're really, really good like this one that I think perfectly illustrates what we're talking about here. In a certain village, the school bell rang at 8.30 a.m. to call the children to class. The boys and girls left their homes and their toys reluctantly, creeping like snails into the school, not late, but not a second early. The bell rang again at 3.30 p.m., releasing the children to homes and toys to which they rushed at the very moment of the tolling of, of the bell. This is how it was every day, except with one child. She came early to help the teacher prepare the room and the materials for the day. She stayed late to help the teacher dust the erasers, clean the board, and put away materials. And during the day, she sat close to the teacher. She had all ears and eyes for the lessons being taught. And one day, when noise and inattention were worse than usual, the teacher called the class to order. 
pointing to the little girl in the front row. The teacher said, why can't you not be as she is? She comes early to help. She stays late to help. And all day long, she is attentive and courteous. And one of the boys stood up and said, it isn't fair to ask us to be as she is. Why? Because she has an advantage, he replied. I don't understand what is her advantage, asked the puzzled teacher. She is an orphan. He almost whispered as he sat down. Isn't that beautiful? I would argue that the orphan girl in this story was a true disciple. She was not distracted by the toys and the homes that the other kids had because she possessed none of those things. Education was not simply one thing that she added to her life. It wasn't one of many things that she did. Education was her life. She lived to go to school, hanging on every precious word uttered by the teacher. Many of you know the story of, of Corey Tinboom. She was a, a Dutch little girl during World War II, and, and their family hid many, many Jews, uh, kept them from being uh, sent to the death camps by the Nazis by hiding them in, in her home until they themselves were shipped off to a concentration camp. She was delivered from the camp, and she wrote a book later, and she said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Cultural Christians tend to turn everywhere, looking for meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. We run to our success in our jobs. We run to our perfect family that we hold up as trophies for the world. We run to our good reputation and our namesake. True disciples say what Peter said, where else could we possibly go to find those things that really matter? Only Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life. The silver lining that Russell Moore was talking about in our coffee conversation is evident in this story. While the cultural Christians desert Jesus in droves, while the kids who get dismissed from the school bell run right back to their little toys, the 12 disciples, or at least 11 of them, became solidified in their commitment to Jesus Christ. These guys don't have all the answers. They're not Bible scholars. They're not legal scholars. They're humble fishermen. And they don't have a clear grasp yet on how Jesus Christ is the bread of life come down from heaven and how he's going to die on a cross and atone for their sins and rise again on Easter and conquer death forever. They don't have a clue about those things yet, but they believe in their souls that the words of Jesus Christ are the best words ever spoken, that they have the ability to make dead things into alive things. And so Peter, who's the spokesperson for the group, he's always the mouthpiece, isn't he? Look at verse 68. Here's what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter nailed it. That's the right answer. 
Except for one thing. He, he thinks he's speaking for the 12. Clearly he's not. John points out that one of them in that group has not only refused to allow Jesus' words to take root in his soul, but he would soon play his part in killing Jesus. Judas has chosen to slide right back into the watershed of this world, rejecting the words of Jesus. So that divide, the continental divide of Christ, stands before us today still. Will we respond in fullness of devotion, like that orphan girl who education was everything for her? So many of us want to add Jesus to our lives. That's not how it works. It's, it's Jesus who we put our lives into. We add our lives to Christ, not the other way around. Christ is the center of the universe. And if we are living our lives without Christ as the center of our lives, we are living out of creation's own step, own design. How will we respond today to the words of Christ? Will we be content to slide into the watershed of this world we can't compete with culture, or the, the, the competition that we face every day, worldly things, or will we live into the flourishing river shed of eternal life? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the words you've given us, the words of eternal life that have come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, I pray that you will help us to live more fully devoted to you, not caring about the offense that we might cause this world. Help us to live as a prophetic minority. When the crowds walk away that we say, where else could we possibly go, God? You alone have the words of eternal life. Nothing else makes sense of our lives or of this world. Nothing else can give us the joy, the fulfillment of knowing that we are in union with the holy God of the universe through Jesus Christ who made a way for us to be right with God forever. God, I pray that we would quit spinning our wheels. We would quit spending our money for that which is not bread, but that we would feast on the bread of life who freely gives to all as we come to him and beg him for eternal life. God, I pray that you would remind us what really matters in this world and to not get hung up. I know there's a lot of people who are anxious today with worldly things. I pray that you would free them from that oppression. May we live fully into devotion as the word of life that you have planted in our souls continues to bear fruit for your kingdom, for your glory, and for our own good. We love you. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing Be Thou My Vision again. You heard the choir sing it. Now we're going to sing it. It's a special song to me. Uh, we Morgan walked down the aisle at our wedding to the song. And I love that, that third verse that says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou and thou only, the, the treasure of my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Right? Thou and thou only first in my heart. Do you have Jesus in the proper place in your own life? Is he on the throne of your life or do you compete with him for that? Are there parts of your life that you're withholding from him? I pray that whatever it is you need to do today to surrender all that you are to Christ and make him the vision for your whole life to see through his eyes, then you would do that. If you need to come and, and talk to me about becoming a Christian, I'll be here during this time. 
if you want to just come pray with somebody, I'm going to ask Trey, uh, Brad, Jane, if you'll come. Oh, Jane's not here. She's with her mom. Yeah, and that's wonderful in Baltimore. Um, if you want to come pray with someone during this time, I invite you to come to the altar. You can just come pray if you want to do that, or you can pray with somebody. Whatever it is that you need to do. If you want to join Woodmont, if you say, it's ready to be a part of this family of faith, I'm going to love people like Jesus loves me, and I want to be loved like that in this family of faith. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to join Woodmont as a member. Whatever it is you need to do, let's stand and sing, Be Thou My Vision.